Today, we are going to continue in our teaching series that we've been in this fall in the book of Acts. And as we celebrate Thanksgiving, our text leads us to the single greatest reason for thanks there is. Now, I know, as we saw in that opening video there, in so many different ways and phrases, there are a lot of things we can be thankful for. We can be thankful for family. We can be thankful for the provisions that we have. We can be thankful for the turkey dinner that is in the oven right now, awaiting you when you get home this afternoon. We can be thankful for peace and a country that we get to call home where we are not hiding away in a safe room with bomb sirens going off. We have a lot of things we can no doubt be thankful for, and those are all true and good, but there is one thing that rises above all of those that we can be thankful for and that we are going to see come out of God's word here today. It is the whipped cream on top of your pumpkin pie. It is the gravy on top of your mashed potatoes. I'm getting myself hungry. It's the, it's the thing over every other thing that leads us to say thank you today. It is this. Jesus died because of you, and you can live because of him. That is the greatest message our world has ever heard. That is the news that leads to more thanksgiving than anything else in all the world combined. Jesus died because of you, and you can live because of him. And that just so happens by God's grace to be the message that on this thanksgiving we land ourselves in in Acts chapter 2. So, if you haven't already, grab your Bible out. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, in fairly nearby reaching proximity, you can grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. And today, we are going to begin in verse 13. Last week, we saw in the beginning 12 verses of Acts chapter 2, this mind-blowing moment happened. Okay, there, there was this giant festival going on in Jerusalem. People from all over the world have united and converged upon Jerusalem. The 120 followers of Jesus were gathered together. And then this, this sound that was like a rushing wind, these fire flames from heaven came down and the long-awaited promise of God that Jesus had predicted came to happen where the Holy Spirit came upon each one of those 120 that were there. And then as if the sound and the fire weren't enough, all of a sudden this crazy, miraculous, unthinkable thing happened where they all started being able to speak fluently in other languages that were not their language. This giant crowd from, from the, the city that heard this noise comes rushing, converges upon them, and hears them speaking their mother tongues from where they came from. And they're like, how are you doing this? And that's where we pick up today. 
Some were amazed. Verse 13 says, Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Some people are just like their jaws are on the floor, and others are thinking at this moment, I guess you've been having a good time at the festival weekend. Maybe a little too good of a time. And Peter stands up, pulls out a soapbox, motions the crowd. And we see in verse 14, he stood up with the 11 apostles and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. And basically what our whole text today is, is the the speech, the sermon, the message that Peter declares. It's a profound and powerful message as the Holy Spirit leads Peter in this very moment. And we're going to study through this speech of Peter today. He says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. They didn't have a crazy night last night. You didn't just hear a noise of them following off their beds and just banging against the pots. No, that's not at all what's going on. Verse 16, this is what's going on right now is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, we are only halfway through chapter two, but already this is our fourth major moment where Luke, who by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit penned this letter, where, where Luke is like, okay, I'm going to give you this, this flashback moment to thrust your mind back to a major Old Testament text. In chapter 1, we saw the pointing out of the replacement of Judas with Matthias to return the apostles back to the number 12. And that was to throw our minds back to Genesis 35. Genesis 35 is where we see that the tribes of Israel come from Jacob's sons who were 12. And the point was to say, hey, ding, 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 ding. God is making a new people. Then, in chapter 2, we, we heard and saw this, this mighty rush, sound of a mighty rushing wind and fire from heaven come down. And that was to send our minds back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. When King Solomon inaugurated the temple and what happened when the temple was the grand opening, fire from heaven came down. Because it's to tell us, ding, 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 ding. God is making a new home. His people We also saw, they start speaking all kinds of different languages, which was to thrust your mind back to Genesis chapter 11. To think about the Tower of Babel and to see the undoing of the curse of sin is happening right in front of us. Ding, 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 ding. The Holy Spirit is changing the people of God from the inside out. And now we have a fourth already throw back to the Old Testament. At this very moment, Peter stands up and says, you need to know God's Savior is Jesus. God's Savior 
is Jesus of Nazareth. And he's going to thrust us back today to several Old Testament passages to show us that. The first is the prophet Joel. 500 years before this is all going down is when Joel wrote by, again, the inspiration of the Spirit, the prophet, the letter we see in our Bibles, Joel. In Joel chapter 2, Peter quotes in front of this whole crowd, a portion of it anyway. He says, this is quoting Joel 2, 28 to 32. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you go back in your Bible, basically right from the very beginning, when our world gets broken because of sin, God starts saying two things, okay? He says, first of all, right from when the world gets broken, sin is bad. Sin leads to death. Sin is rebellion against God. It is bad, and it's not okay. It's not going to just get by without being dealt with. And he says, right back to the very beginning and when the world broke, he says, I am going to send a rescuer to deal with sin. I am going to send one who is going to save people from the guilt and the consequences of their sin. Right from the very beginning and over and over and over again in scripture, we see these two realities. Sin is bad. It is worthy of punishment because we have rebelled against God and yet God has a plan to send a rescuer to deal with sin and set a people free to be white as snow, washed pure and clean. And in between these two moments where sin is bad and it's going to be dealt with and God is going to send a rescuer there is going to be something that's going to happen. That's what Joel is talking about. Do you notice there where it says, Joel says, in the last days. The last days, which Joel chapter 2 is talking about, is the window in between those two coming moments. In between the moment when the rescuer comes and sin is judged and punished rightly, in the last days, the middle between those two moments, something profound is going to happen. God, in that time, is going to pour out his Holy Spirit. He's going to pour out his Holy Spirit on young and old, men and women, masters and servants, all people. He's going to do this incredible work in that time where he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And Peter is standing up at this moment and saying, hey, they're not drunk. That's not what's going on here. 
Do you remember those Bible verses you memorized when you went to synagogue school as a little kid that talked about those two and then the moment in the middle? That moment in the middle is happening right in front of you right now. That's what Peter is saying as he quotes Joel 2. And catch this, okay? Remember how he said, listen carefully? Bethel, Bethel, listen carefully. Why is he pointing to Joel chapter 2? Why is he saying this moment in the middle is happening? Here's why he's saying this. The moment in the middle can only happen after the Savior has come. That's what Peter is pointing to here. First, the rescuer needs to come. Then the Holy Spirit is poured out. And soon, the judgment is going to happen. So if right now, as these people are prophesying miraculously in front of you, if that's going down, guess what that means? The rescuer has come. The rescuer has come. God's Savior is Jesus of Nazareth. That's the logic Peter is following here. Oh, do you see the fulfillment of the last days? That's because the Savior has come. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what he says in verse 21. Men of Israel, verse 22, he continues, listen to this. You see it here, right? Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which he did among you through him, as you yourselves know, you people, you, you ran to hear his teaching and flocked by the thousands to sit and listen to his every word. You lined the streets with your sick people for him to pray for them and heal them. Some of you even went to funerals and saw the person you were there grieving over raised to life at their funeral. You saw this Jesus do all kinds of crazy stuff. God's Savior is Jesus. You saw this. But this man, verse 23 continues, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is so powerful, friends. Peter, standing up in front of this whole crowd, looks them right in the eye. He says, you saw Jesus do all of these things that were, were mind-blowing and miraculous and incredible. You witnessed it with your own eyes, and then you killed him. The phrase Peter uses here, it, it, in the original language, it literally means, it carries the sense of, you individually, all of you, one by one by one, you killed him. Now, Peter, of course, knows 
He, he knows Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus, stabbed him in the back for a bit of silver. He knows that. He, he knows almost two months has passed between, between Passover when Jesus was killed and this day. Surely not everybody in this crowd is the same crowd that was shouting out crucify him. I mean, there's, there's definitely some that would be overlapped, right? But it's not everybody. He knows that. He knows the chief priests and the rulers of the people were the ones who were conniving to put this whole mock trial together to have Jesus killed. He, he knows Pilate was the one who Jesus was brought before and ultimately said, crucify him. He knows it was Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus' hands and feet to the cross. He knows all of that, and yet he looks them in the eye and says, you killed him. You nailed him to the cross. Each and every one of you. How does he say that? Knowing all of those realities. You see, and I, I, I think actually it would be very reasonable for us even to envision in our mind's eye that Peter could stand up right here right now and look at me and each one of you and look us right in the eye. And he could rightly say to you and I too, you killed Jesus. See, not only is God's Savior Jesus, Jesus died because of you. Jesus died because of you. Think about that. That whole audience there in front of Peter on that day and every one of us here today, how many times have we denied who Jesus really is? Verbally, just, just outright denied him? How many times have we denied Jesus with our actions, doing things we know he's told us we shouldn't do, which is just another way of us saying, la, 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 I don't really believe you're really God and ruler and savior of the world. I'm just gonna go my way. How many times have we turned our backs upon him? Just like everybody there that day. But even more than that, think about what was happening when Jesus was crucified. Jesus hung on the cross to pay the penalty of death for sins. Now, whose sins was he dying for? It was not his own sin. 2 Corinthians 5 is clear that Jesus was without sin. Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross for the, the sin he had committed the wrongs he had done. He wasn't paying the penalty he deserved. He lived a perfect spotless life. He didn't deserve to hang on the cross. So whose sin was he hanging on the cross for? I'll tell you who. My sin and your sin. That's whose. Jesus died. He hung on the cross because of the sin that I did. He didn't just hang on the cross in a general sense for the sin of the world, although we can certainly say that that is true, but he hung on the cross 
for your specific sin. Do you know that? He died because of you and because of me. And so, just as Peter looks into the eyes of this crowd, he can even look into our eyes and say, you nailed him to the cross. But don't think for a moment that this was a tragedy. Oh, this was, a, this was not expected. God got duped. Because that's not at all what went on here, right? You know that. We see verse 23. Let me just read it for us again. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. This was all exactly as God planned. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan and Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for you and me. He was handed over for us for the forgiveness of our sins. According to the plan of God. I remember, and I I think I've shared this story a few years ago, so some of you might recall it, but I remember when I was a university student sitting with a guy I worked with and talking to him as we worked together in the student newspaper about the forgiveness that God offers to us because Jesus died for us. And I remember him just looking at me as soon as I started to talk with this and his whole body just sank. Because he explained to me, there's no way I can believe that I can be worthy to be forgiven. He told me a story of when he was in high school, his girlfriend got pregnant And he forced her to have an abortion. She didn't want to, but he put so much pressure on her. And this had just sat as this like weight over his head ever since. He justified it as the moment. We're so young, it'll ruin our lives. It's the good thing to do. But he couldn't get out from under it. And when I sat here with him across the table at work saying, you can be forgiven because Jesus died for you. He's like, there's no way that could be true because I am not worthy of being died for. And maybe you sit here and you have your own little story like that where you're like, there's no way. You don't know what I have done, where I have been. I am not worthy. And can I tell you, that totally misses the point because here's here's what's going on. Jesus went to the cross not because you are worthy, but because you're unworthy. That's the whole point. If you were worthy, he wouldn't have needed to die for you. If you had your whole act together, you wouldn't need a savior. The fact that Jesus died is him saying, I see all the crap and garbage and mistakes. And that's why I went to the, to the cross. It was for all 
of that filth. That's why I died. Exactly according to God's plan. And not only was it God's plan, but it was for him to die, but it was impossible for him to stay dead. That was God's plan too, for death to be defeated. The agony of sin, the agony of death, the weight of all of the garbage that is us, our lives laid upon him, it couldn't contain him. It was impossible for him to remain bound up by death. He was raised to life. And now Peter jumps to this other Old Testament figure with the same point as why he went to Joel. He says in verse 25, David, that's talking about King David, said about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have known me you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. David wrote those words in Psalm 16. But surely you know he wasn't talking about himself never uh, tasting death and sitting in the grave. You know that, right? David died. Verse 29, brothers, sisters, I can tell you confidently the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb, to this day, is just right over there. You can imagine Peter motioning, right? You can go visit where the tomb of David is. David wasn't talking about himself in Psalm 16. But verse 30 continues, he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not going to be abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to this fact. He exalted him to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend up to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David, David, David was pointing ahead to the Savior who would come. The Savior is Jesus. That's who Joel was pointing ahead to. That's who David was pointing ahead to. That's why this moment in front of us is going on here. It's to ring from the rooftops. The Savior has come. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He looks into the eyes of those who he said. Jesus died because of you. And now he says, you can live because of him. 
Jesus died because of you and you can live because of him. He is the Lord, which means like ruler, master, king of everything. And I mean, how can you not see this? Look at how he orchestrated all of history as if it were just pawns to work out exactly as he planned and purposed. He's the Lord of all, but he is also, he says right there, he is the Lord and the Christ. Now that phrase, Christ, is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Just like you might go to your doctor and say, doctor, or you... We don't probably say it too much anymore, but you walk up and say, sir, ma'am, Christ is a title for the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Christ. You killed Jesus, but now you can live because of him. Everyone, verse 21, who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Let all Israel be assured of this. You can be confident of this. This is rock solid. Jesus died because of you and you can live because of him. And when, verse 37 says, the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. Jesus died because of you and you can live because of him. Repent and be baptized this very day. That's the call that Peter declares. You need to sit under the weight of your own sin. You need to sit under the the heaviness of the fact that Jesus died because of the wrongs you did and I did. You need to feel that upon your shoulders, but, but do not be crushed by that because you can live. He is the one who died for you to set you free. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And revival breaks out. 3,000 were added to their number that day. In a moment, the church went from 120 people to over 3,000 getting baptized in one day. What a sight that service would be to see, that baptism service, eh? 3,000 people, one after another, after another, after another, getting baptized. As the Spirit of God came down upon these dear brothers and sisters Bethel, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, there is no greater message. There's a lot of things you can be thankful for. And it's great to be thankful for all of them, but there is no greater thing to be thankful for than this truth. Jesus died because of you and you can live because of him. There's no greater message than all the world to be declared to lead us to thanksgiving today than that glorious truth that Peter profoundly preaches here. 
And the call that Peter gave to the audience in front of him is the exact same call that is issued forth to each one of us here today. As you hear this message declared, repent and be baptized. Repent. It means to turn. The call of every single one of us is is stop going in the direction you are that is your own way, your own life, your own agenda, your own will, and turn from that and run to Jesus. The call for every single one of us in this room and moment by moment by moment is just this. As followers of Jesus, or if you are to become a follower of Jesus, repent, Stop running that way and run back to Jesus. And perhaps today there are some in this room who you for the very first time need to make that commitment. You need to hear. Stop running. There is forgiveness. Stop running. There is relief. Stop running. There is hope that we sang about. There is everlasting life. You can be washed whiter than snow no matter how unworthy you feel. If you would but run to Jesus this very day, and there's not some special formula to that. There's not like do A, B, and C, or do it in a certain place, or say a certain thing in an exact certain way. It's the cry of your heart. I surrender all to you, Jesus. I put my faith in you. And if you're here today and you haven't made that commitment, just as it says here with Peter, can I plead with you? Can I urge you? Don't walk out those doors before doing business with God. While you hear his voice knocking on your heart, respond even in this very moment from your seat Say, if this guy, if what this guy is saying is even remotely true, oh God, I want that. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent and be baptized. Baptism is the public display and expression of a personal faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's going into the water, you stand and are go down into the water as if a visual display of how you've put your faith in Jesus so you've been united with him in his death when he went into the grave and you are raised back up out of the water as this display of your unity with Jesus being raised to life. It is an expression of our personal faith in Jesus. Jesus, the very end of his life, Matthew 28, said to his disciples, passed on from generation to generation to generation, I want you to go. I want you to make disciples. I want you to teach them, and you need to baptize them. It's the very last words of Jesus. Go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why Peter and the apostles are doing this, because they're obeying the words of Jesus. And over and over and over again, you're going to see as we journey through the book of Acts, this just keeps coming up. People believe, and they get baptized. They put their faith in Jesus, and they get baptized as a display of their profession of faith. So I need to lovingly 
but unapologetically and boldly ask you here today, repent and be baptized. Have you been baptized as an expression of your personal faith in Jesus? That's the call of God's Word to every single person who is a follower of Jesus. Now you may say, well, I don't really need to get baptized. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I serve in different ways. I put my money in the the offering boxes. I believe in Jesus. Why do I need to go through and, and do this, you know, religious duty of checking off the box? I don't like organized religion. Okay. Fair enough. But here's what I'd say to you. This isn't about checking off some box that I'm standing up here as, like, who cares about me? This isn't about this particular place in this particular church. This is about the one you claim to be a follower of. Who said to you, whose name you take upon yourself if you say, I am a Christian. He said to you, be baptized. So forget about me. Forget about whatever place and organized religion. What do you do with the fact that the one whose name you take, you are not listening to? Now maybe you say, well, I was baptized as a young child. I was baptized as a baby. So I've already been baptized. Okay, let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about that because that's actually my, some of you know this, everybody now will know. That's my personal story. I grew up in a tradition, church tradition, where my parents loved Jesus and baptized me as a baby as a display of their desire to live out we're going to raise Alan and our other sons to follow Jesus. Now, just so you know, some of you know, my parents are sitting in this room. I've talked this through a bunch with them. They know all this. They even know I'm going to talk about this here today, okay? So it's not any awkward moments, all right? Just so you know. I deeply respect and appreciate what my parents, their heart behind what they were doing. And my parents would tell you, basically, their intent was exactly what you saw Craig and Ellie doing here today. They didn't think they were saving me. They, they were dedicating me. And in the tradition we grew up in, that's what you call baptism. That's what, so I was baptized. Here's, here's the problem. And I wrestled for years after I got saved, actually six years after I got saved before I got baptized. Here's the problem that I was struggling with that led me to finally get baptized as a believer and why I don't think it's a credible response in love, all love, to say I was baptized as a baby. Every single instance in the Bible of baptism is a person believes and then as a display of their faith, they get baptized. Every one. Now, there are some who are older that do that, and there are some who are younger in families, but every single instance, everyone, 
There is not an instance in the Bible where a person, it does not say, they believed in Jesus and then were baptized. So here's the issue. What happened to me when I was a baby with all the most wonderful of intents wasn't what the Bible calls baptism. I know it was called that. I know for some of you it was called that. But it wasn't baptism. Because baptism, defined in the Bible, is believe in Jesus and then get baptized. And guess what I wasn't doing when I was a couple months old? I wasn't believing in Jesus. So I came to the point after wrestling with this for years to say, if I really am going to obey Jesus, then I need to get baptized because I've now come, not when I was two months old, I've now come to put my faith in Jesus. So let me ask you, have you been baptized? Now maybe you say, well, it's, it's really scary to get up in the tank in front of a bunch of people. Okay? Maybe you say, I've waited too long. You think six years is a long time? I've waited a lot longer than that, Alan. Maybe you say, I've still got so much to work out. I'm not ready yet. Maybe, like any number of different things. Okay. There are a lot of opportunities to come alongside and support you and the goal is not to make baptism unnecessarily onerous on you, okay? So if you've got those sort of things going on inside, I'd be delighted to get to talk to you and come alongside so you can honor Jesus. But here would be my final thought. Sure, maybe it's uncomfortable, okay? Okay. Sure, maybe it really pushes you out of your comfort zone, okay? How comfortable do you think Jesus was when he hung on the cross for you? Honestly, look at what Jesus did for you and I. So God's word here declares this Thanksgiving Sunday to us. This powerful call and challenge. Jesus died because of you, but you can live because of him. The response for every single one of us here today is the same as what Peter called out on that very first day this sermon was preached, repent and be baptized. May God give us the grace to respond. May he pour out his Holy Spirit in this place just as he did on that day.